Good morning. Missed you guys last week. I hope uh, <clears throat> hope you're here. You heard an excellent message from Andy last week about open-handed living. So we're going to continue this series uh, today. We've been talking about <clears throat> this idea that we have enough already. There, there's this sense of anxiety and fear associated with our, our finances that makes us feel like we don't have enough, that we need more, or, or we would like to get more if we could. <clears throat> but the abundance of God, this world that he's created, uh, the fact that we live in a kingdom with an infinitely wealthy an extremely generous king should convince us that we have enough already. <clears throat> we have enough already so we can live open-handed. We don't have to live with our fists closed tight around what we have or with this desire to get more. We can live open-handed instead. There's a lot more peace here. There's a lot more joy here. And there's a lot more opportunity for us to be a part of what God has set up to be a community of people where everyone's needs are met. If we have believers living like this, then there will be people within the church who do not have what they need. They do not have enough. But if all the followers of Jesus live like this, then we'll mirror what happened in the early church in the book of Acts when it was said of them that no one considered any of their possessions as their own and everyone had what they needed. Everyone had what they needed. We have enough already. Today, we're going to take this in a little different direction, and we're going to talk about something that you don't want to talk about, <clears throat> but we're going to do it anyway. That's what a captive audience means. You're, you're kind of stuck here. So unless you like, if you have like this coughing fit, if you can feel it, you can feel it coming already, can't you? Like, oh, I'm going to have a coughing fit. I'm going to have to leave. Uh, so you can do that, uh, but we, we will all know. You just don't want to talk about greed. Uh, greed is something that no one thinks they're guilty of. No one thinks that they're guilty of greed. We can all think of other people who are guilty of greed, but we don't ever look in the mirror and go, you know what I need to repent from? Listen, I'm a pastor. I hear people confess things all the time. People come to me and say, hey, I'm really struggling with this. I really have a problem with this. I have never once had anyone come to me and say, hey, Adam, I could use some help. I'm really struggling with greed. I feel like I'm just a greedy person. No one has ever said that to me. None of us feel like that greed is an issue for us. But we live in a world where it's easy to see that greed is a part of what's happening, right? <clears throat> I don't know if you, we don't want to bring this up often, but do you remember the financial crisis in 2008? You remember that? What happened in our country related to real estate and things? There, there's a lot of analysis has been done about why that happened and maybe how to prevent things like that from happening again. Um, but here's, here's uh, what one scholar or uh, analyst said. He's from the Columbia Business School. His name is David Beam. He's, this is what he said about the financial crisis in, in 2008. He said, the problem is not the banks, greedy though they may be, overpaid though they may be. The problem is us. We have been living very high on the hog. Our standard of living has been rising dramatically over the last 25 years, and we have been borrowing to make much of that prosperity happen. We have overborrowed, and we have done that over many, many decades, and now it's reaching an unbearable peak where people on average cannot repay the debts they've got. That was his analysis of what happened in 2008 with, with the financial crisis there. He, what he's pointing to is human greed. 
And, and so there's been a lot of study done on how to prevent those kind of crashes from happening. But one thing that all of the projections take into consideration is that people are greedy. So we have to just assume if people are going to be greedy, how do we set up an economic system that prevents greedy people from destroying themselves? <laughs> how do we do that? Because the assumption is that people are greedy. So if that's the assumption about our nation and really most of the world, then why is it that no one thinks they're greedy? Well, somebody's got to be, right? Is it only the, the wealthy people, the people in power, the people that are able to influence these kind of national things? Or is, is there something in each of us that, that maybe we need to take a look at? So let's, let's just play a, a little game really quick. We'll do a quiz show and, and uh, see, see how well you understand American consumerism, okay? So I'm going to ask a question. There'll be some options on the screen, and you pick what you think is the best option. So in 2018... How much did Americans, this is just America, how much did Americans spend on their pets in 2018? What's your guess? The answer is C, 72 billion with a B dollars on pets in one year. This number goes up every year. And the main reason why it goes up, what the people who have studied this have said, is not because people have more pets, it's because people are buying more expensive food for their pets. That's the biggest cost. That we have become convinced, because marketers are doing their job, that our pets need high-end food if they're going to be healthy. These are the animals that we're talking about that will go out in the woods and eat dead things and their own poop, right? And we, we're convinced that we have to spend like insane amounts of money to give them high quality food so they'll be healthy. The marketers are genius and we fall for it, right? Next question. How much did Americans spend in 2018 on ice cream? On ice cream. The answer is B. 5.5, it could have been worse. Some of you were thinking worse. This averages out to six gallons of ice cream a year per person at $5 a gallon. And some of you are like, oh, I don't eat six gallons of ice cream a year. Well, don't worry. I'm, ta I'm, I'm taking care of your part of that. Uh, if you're only eating two gallons, I've got your other four covered. Don't worry. But ice cream, is ice cream necessary for survival? Listen, I love ice cream. And I'm just going to have to be honest and say, no, it's not. I could live without it. $5.5 billion on something we don't really need. USA Today did a report on how much people spend per household, per person, on non, what they call non-essentials, things that you really don't need. So this would not include your food, your clothing, your shelter, your housing. It doesn't even include your transportation. Whatever you need to do to get to your job and, and all of that doesn't include that. How much do you think the average American spends on non-essentials in one year? In one year. The average American spends how much? The answer is $18,000 a year on things that you don't need. Ice cream. Expensive pet food. Things that we don't really need. Now, where does that come from? Why why do we do that? There's, there's something in us that convinces us that we need more. We're going to dive into this a little bit more later, but 
the first question many of you may be asking is, so what? I mean, what's the big deal? There's nothing wrong with eating ice cream. Six gallons a year doesn't sound excessive to me <laughs> at all. Like, what, what's the big deal with this mentality? Well, here's, here's the, the answer. If you're a follower of Jesus, greed is a big deal because greed is a sign that our lives are not centered on Christ, that we have misunderstood or chosen to ignore what life in the kingdom of God is supposed to look like. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus is on his way from Galilee to Jerusalem. And so he's taking this road trip, and a lot of things happen on this road trip. One of the things that happens is he runs into this young man who's, who's called a rich young ruler. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, what do I need to do to be saved? And Jesus says, well, follow the law. And the guy says, check, done it, followed all the laws. And the rest of us are going, really? But this is what he says, I've done it. Follow. And Jesus says, okay, last thing that you need to do, sell all your possessions, give the money to the poor, and come and follow me. And scripture says the rich man walked away very sad because he had great wealth. And after this, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, it is extremely difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And the disciples look at him and say, well, then... Who can be saved? They, they had this mentality in their culture that the, the wealth that you have is a sign of God's favor. And so the richer you are, the closer you are to God. And if rich people can't be saved, then who can be saved? And Jesus says, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Now, what does this mean for us? Most of us in this room will go, well, that stinks for rich people. You know, tough, that's a tough, tough road for them, but... I don't have to worry about that. I'm not rich. Isn't that how most of us would classify ourselves? I'm not, I'm not rich. Compared to who? I mean, it's always relative, right? It depends on who you're comparing yourself to. All of you can find somebody who has more than you, right? But do you realize that there's over 6 billion people in the world who have less than you? 6 billion people in the world who have less than you. So if we're comparing ourselves to the rest of the world, every person in this room is rich. If that's true, then Jesus' words should strike a little fear into our hearts because what does he say? It is extremely difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Well, that, that should have us sitting on the edge of our seat wondering, okay, so if I'm rich, compared to the rest of the world, I don't feel rich. When I look at my bank account, I don't think I'm rich. But compared to the rest of the world, I am rich. And Jesus said it's going to be really hard for rich people to enter the kingdom. Then I need to know how this is going to happen. Well, good news for you. Jesus continues on his journey and arrives in Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. And he meets another man. And this is the story that I really want to dive into today. In Luke chapter 19... We're going to pick up here in verse 1. If you got a Bible, open it. You're just going to have to be quick because I'm going. You ready? Here we go. Uh, 19.1. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up in a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus... Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. 
And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Now, if you're reading through the Gospel of Luke, and you've read through chapter 18, and you heard this story about the rich young ruler, and you heard Jesus say, it's really hard for rich people to get into heaven, then when you, you get just a few verses later to Zacchaeus, and it says, now here's another rich man. You remember the rich man that, that walked away sad? Here's another rich man. You should be on the edge of your seat listening in. What is Jesus going to do with this guy? Is something different going to happen? Is, does this guy have a chance? And you get to the end of the story and you realize, yes, salvation has come to the house of Zacchaeus. It is possible for a rich person to get into the kingdom. So what's the difference between the rich young ruler and Zacchaeus? Well, let's get to know Zacchaeus a little bit first. It says that he was a chief tax collector. He lived in Jericho, which was a very prosperous city because it's on a major trade route and a lot of money goes through Jericho. And the tax collector's job is to make sure that the Roman government gets their due, right? The Roman government is in charge. They own, basically, Israel. And Israel has to pay taxes to the Roman government. And the tax collector's job is to make sure Rome gets what, what they deserve. But the way that the Rome, Roman government set it up was the tax collector can charge whatever he wants, he can keep whatever's left over after he sends the Roman government what's owed to them. So tax collectors would often overcharge people so that they could make more money. Because this was the case, then any Jew who signed up to be a tax collector for Rome was considered a traitor. They were basically excommunicated from the community of believers. And they were put on a list at the bottom of the rung of the Jewish community. When people would talk about the bad people in their society, when Jews would talk about the bad people in their society, they would rank them like this. There are prostitutes, and then there are sinners, and then there are tax collectors at the bottom. That's how bad it was to the Jews to betray your own people and extort them for your own personal gain. What would make someone take this job? What would make someone take this job to, to, to know that they're going to be rejected by their family, that they're going to be excommunicated from their community? What would make someone sign up for that job? One thing, greed. That's got to be it. That's the only benefit of this job is the money. He gets to make more money. Zacchaeus, as the chief tax collector, he's kind of the boss of all the other tax collectors in Jericho, might be the richest man in the whole city. And just a few days after Jesus said, it is really, really, really hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven, he runs into the guy who might be the richest man in the whole city of Jericho. And he says, you and I, we need to talk. I got some good news for you. So he invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house. This never happens to Zacchaeus. Why? No one likes him. No one likes him. Now, rich people are always going to have friends, aren't they? Because there's always going to be people looking to get a little bit of the overflow, right? But no one really likes Zacchaeus. He betrayed his own people. He's cheating them out of their hard-earned wages to line his own pockets, and Jesus, this respected rabbi, says, I, 
I like you. Like to sit down at a meal with someone in the Jewish culture, and it's still the same in Eastern culture today, is a sign of usually friendship. At the very least, to sit down and have a meal with someone says, everything is okay between me and you. You and I, we don't have any problems. You don't sit down to a meal with your enemy in Jewish culture. doesn't happen. So to sit down with someone is to say, everything's okay between me and you. And Jesus sits down with, uh, to a meal with this man who was rejected by all the other people in his life because of the choice he made. What is Jesus trying to say, not just to Zacchaeus, but to the other people around? Well, eventually Jesus says, I came to seek and save the lost. And Jesus is not just interested in the easy pickings, the low-hanging fruit. He's going after what might be the toughest sell in the whole city of, of Jericho. Because he already just said, it's really hard for rich people to get into the kingdom, so I want to sit down to dinner with the richest man in the city. And what is the result of this meal? Wouldn't it be great to know what they talked about? What, what conversation was happening? All we know is that everyone else is really mad about this. Everyone else is really upset that Jesus would go and have dinner with this guy. This does not line up with the way that they think a religious leader ought to behave. What did they talk about? Who knows? What we do know is the result. At some point in this dinner, Zacchaeus stands up and says, guess what, Jesus? Guess what? I'm going to give away half of my wealth to the poor. I'm just going to give it away. And I'm going to go back through my records, and anybody that I've cheated, anybody that I've overcharged for taxes, I'm going to pay them back. But I'm not just going to pay them back. I'm going to pay them back four times what I took from them. 400% interest on what I cheated them out of. And Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. Why, why does Jesus say it in that moment, salvation has come to this house? Did Zacchaeus buy his salvation by giving away money? Is that what happened? No. No, what happened first was salvation came to the house. At some point, Zacchaeus had made a decision to center his life around Jesus. At some point, he made that decision. And the result of that decision is that he gives away his wealth. The salvation that has come to this house is evidence of a Jesus-centered life. It's not the means of salvation. It's the evidence of it. I think we have to ask ourselves the question, why would Zacchaeus be so interested in seeing Jesus? So curious that he would run ahead of the crowd and climb up into a tree just to try to see him. He's got everything, doesn't he? I mean, as the, one of the wealthiest men in the city, what, what could he possibly need from Jesus? I wonder if at some point Zacchaeus realized that the money that he had been chasing by taking this job to begin with was not getting it done. It was not what he was really after. And he gets to a point where he recognizes he needs something different. The money's not not the solution to whatever his problem is. He needs something different. And he thinks maybe Jesus has that something different to offer him. Maybe Jesus can give him a pathway to peace and joy and purpose. Maybe Jesus can do for him what he hoped money would do, but it's not happening. And so he chases him down and he finds what he needs in Jesus. Do you know how you, you know he finds what he needs? Because money no longer matters to him. Money no longer matters. He just starts giving it away. That's what open-handed living does. It rejects greed and embraces generosity. Now, here's where the rubber meets the road for us. 
What, what I think happens in our lives, and I think, I think greed is an issue for all of us on some level. Now, now, I'm not saying that you're a greedy person, but I'm saying that we're all susceptible to this one thing about greed. And that is, if we define greed as a selfish desire to get what we do not need, I think we're all susceptible to that. A desire to get more than what we need. So what we do is we mix up the definitions for want and need. And when we add greed to want, want becomes need. And we start to say that we need things that we don't really need. It's just things that we want. Okay? So I need shoes. It's important for me to wear shoes so I can walk around and not cut my feet up. But what kind of shoes do I need? Do I need $100 shoes? Do I need $150 shoes? No. I, 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 don't, I don't need expensive shoes. I need... I need $30, $40 shoes. If, if I'm spending a lot more than that on shoes, I have, I have shifted somewhere in my head a want, and I've added greed, and I've turned it into a need. I need a car. In, in, in the community that we live in, I need a car to get around, but what kind of car do I need? Do, do I need a $30,000 car? Do I need a $50,000 car? Do I need a $70,000 car? I just need a car. What, what do I really need? I, I need to eat, right? Do you need to eat? How many of you plan on having lunch later? None of you? Cool. Great. Cassidy, thank you for participating. Uh, I'll be hanging out with you afterwards. All you people fasting. You're fasting, aren't you? You're so spiritual. Love it. Okay. Uh, but what, how, what do I need to eat? Do I need to eat expensively? Do I need to eat steak dinner all the time? Do I need to go out to fancy restaurants, you know, during the week? Do I, what do I really need? I know what I, I, know what I want. But what do I need? When we begin to call wants needs, we've allowed greed to creep into our lives. Now listen, am I saying that there's anything wrong with going to a nice restaurant? Of course not. Is there anything wrong with owning a nice car? Absolutely not. It's just really important that we understand the difference between want and need. Because what happens with our needs is, is we kind of hold on tightly to our needs. Like these are, I've got to have some clothes to wear. I really need a place to sleep at night. And we hold on tightly to those things. But our wants, we should be very open-handed with. And we need to recognize that there's a lot of stuff in our lives that are wants that we need to hold on very loosely to. So the next level of this, want becoming need, is for want to become need to become, I deserve this. I worked hard. I paid my dues. I deserve this. I deserve to indulge in a little bit of luxury. I, I, I deserve this reward. The problem with this is that, that we fall into what James Clear would call the upgrade trap, the upgrade trap. The upgrade trap is, is based on uh, a story from, from this guy named Diderot, who was a French philosopher in the 17th century, and he was a part of putting together the first world encyclopedia, right? So he's very, very intelligent, you know, worked hard, put this together, but he happens to be very poor. Well, Catherine the Great of Russia had this encyclopedia. She thought it was brilliant. She found out that the guy, one of the guys who helped create it was poor. So she sent him a bunch of money because she found out that his daughter was about to get married. And he didn't have enough money for a dowry to pay for the wedding. So she sent him a bunch of money. So he gets this influx of money. The first thing he does is he goes out and buys a new cloak, a really nice red cloak. Loves it. It's his prized possession. 
Then he starts to look at everything else he owns next to this cloak, and he goes, man, my, uh, my, my, my furniture is, is pretty terrible. Like, I've got this really nice cloak, but I'm sitting on this ratty old, you know, chair. And, and my shoes, I just don't have any shoes that go with this. Ladies, feel me, right? No, got a new dress? What else do I need? New shoes, probably some earrings. Like, I, I, nothing else goes with this cloak, so he starts buying new shoes and a new rug for his home and new furniture for his home. And before you know it, he spent all the money that, the, that Catherine the Great sent him, and he still has nothing left for his daughter's wedding because he, he bought one new item that didn't fit in with the rest. You guys, you guys have experienced this. You know what it's like. You've got the dress situation. You've got, you know, you buy a gym membership, right? But you don't just need the gym membership. Now you also need a foam roller and some knee sleeves and some wrist wraps and a paleo meal plan. And so you start shelling out for all that, right? It just adds up. Anybody ever bought your daughter or granddaughter an American Girl doll? It doesn't stop there, does it? Because there are accessories, right? So you have to have different outfits and different clothes, and you can go down a, a big, giant financial hole with that system. You get a new couch for your living room, and suddenly you're looking at the rest of your furniture going, hmm, this stuff doesn't fit. It doesn't match anymore. Maybe I need to upgrade that and upgrade this and upgrade that. It's an easy trap to fall into because we start to translate wants into needs, it's okay to want stuff. Let me be really clear about that. It's okay to want stuff that's never going to go away. We just need to be really honest with ourselves about what we want versus what we need. And we need to be very open-handed with our needs. Jesus said this in Luke 12, 15. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. It's something that will sneak into your life and you will not notice it until you've gone pretty far down that road. So that's why, that's why we need to watch out. We need to be aware. Am I living with, with a closed hand or am I living open-handed? Because the difference between the rich young ruler and Zacchaeus is one very important piece. Zacchaeus gave. He gave recklessly. He gave generously. Money, the, the way that he viewed money changed 180 degrees when he put Jesus at the center of his life. Well, 180 degree change. And he went from this to this. The cure for greed is give. 1 John 3.17 says, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? What John is doing is he, he's trying to to build into the church that existed during that time the same thing that existed when they started out. That, that ability to look around at everyone who's a part of the church and go, we don't have anybody who has needs here. Everyone's needs have been met because everyone who has a little extra has given to those who didn't have enough. John says that's how the church is supposed to work because that's what the love of God produces in you. When you're aware of how much God has given you, when you're aware of the abundance of God's love, when you're aware of the abundance of God's possessions, then the response to that is, I, I, I have enough already. I don't need more. In fact, I could probably give some away. And, and here's an important 
uh, piece to the Zacchaeus story that I think we really need to think about for a minute. Imagine how many relationships were broken when Zacchaeus chose to become a tax collector. How many relationships were broken every time he cheated someone out of their money? People that he had an opportunity to have friendships with, to be close with, to do life together with. Those opportunities squandered by his greed. Now imagine how many opportunities for restoration of relationship were created. When Zacchaeus shows up at your door and says, hey, listen, last year I cheated you out of $100 of your taxes. Here's a check for $400. How many opportunities for restoring relationships are available when we go from this to this? I love to think about that. I wish we knew more about Zacchaeus. I can't wait to ask him about this someday. What happened when he started to give away his wealth? So we always end uh, in this series with a challenge, an open-handed living experiment, right? So I'm going to lay this out for you really quickly. We'll wrap up and be done. The open-handed uh, living experiment is to, to give as, as kind of like this reminder to yourself that you're not going to let greed creep in. The cure to greed is give, right? So we're going to give. So here's a couple ideas. First one is buy one, give one. Buy one, give one. Some of you are thinking, buy one, get one. I love buy one, get one. That's my favorite sale. Buy one, get one. No, buy one, give one. So if you go out and buy something new, buy two and give the second one away. If your kid needs shoes, you're going out and buying a pair of shoes for your kid. You find a great deal. Oh, I can't believe these shoes are on sale. This is the best deal ever. Buy two option and give the second one away. Buy one, give one. Just try it. Another option, uh, second option, go 30 days without buying anything new. Some of you are thinking, no problem. Do it all the time. Others of you have Amazon packages on your doorstep three or four days a week, right? What if you could go 30 days without buying anything new? What kind of money would you save? And what could you do with that money? Third option, sell something that you do not need and give the money away. Just go through your house, go through your stuff, go through your storage, your attic, whatever. Find stuff that you don't need and sell it and give the money away. So our family has adopted this third option. So we went through some stuff in the last couple weeks. We posted a bunch of stuff on Facebook Marketplace, and we're starting to sell some stuff. Our boys just kind of realized, hey, we haven't played with that in a while. We don't really need, we can, we're fine without that. Doesn't, doesn't hurt us in any way. So we're selling some stuff, and we're going to give the money away. We haven't decided exactly what we're going to do with the money yet. Uh, we're still working on that. But that's, that's our problem. Hey, with Facebook Marketplace, it's like a yard sale every day, man. It's just so easy. So, um, so jump on there, get rid of some stuff, or have a yard sale. Get, get together with your microchurch and say, let's just sell some stuff and give the money away. What can we do, right? Because if, if we're being generous, it's, it's, just a good, it's just a good checkup uh, to make sure that greed is not creeping into our lives. If you have a really hard time, if you look at something and you know, I don't need this, but... I really want to keep it. Then maybe, maybe, maybe there's a sign there that you've translated some wants into needs and greed has crept in. So let me just encourage you. Choose one of these options. Buy one, give one. Go 30 days with nothing new or sell something you own and give the money away. It's an opportunity. Jesus said that the proof that salvation had come into Zacchaeus' home was his generosity. His generosity was proof that Jesus was already at the center of his life. So, where's the proof? Where's the proof in your life? 
Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for being generous to us. Thank you for giving us an opportunity to be generous to others. And I pray that we would truly be a church family where everyone's needs are met because those who have a little extra are giving to those who need. And I pray that in this, you would be honored, that, that we would be shining a light to the world around us that demonstrates that you are a generous God and you've provided for everything we need. In Christ's name, amen.